things I am always curious about and interested in for whatever reason and sort of amused by are people who have changed their names. Now, I don't know if, if anybody in here has, has done that. Uh, if you used to be uh, one name and you changed it. But I think it's fascinating to know why do people do that? Why do they change names? Certainly, uh, for some, they, they think that it will be a simpler, easier maybe name to remember, something like that. Or maybe uh, you, you've known folks who uh, turning a page in their life or something like that. I don't know, but, it, but it's always interesting to me. And sometimes, not always, sometimes amusing to see what one person's name was and then what it is. Now, I've got a little quiz for you this morning to see if you can guess some of the name changes uh, that have taken place. Now, I will tell you that the real names of these folks are names that most of us, if not all of us, will be very, very familiar with. At least you've heard of them. All right, so here we go. We're going to put the first one on the screen. Here's a person named Marion Morrison. Now, some of you probably know this. Anybody know who Marion Morrison is? John Wayne, absolutely. Some of you didn't know that. Listen, look how much you learned today. Right? Already. Here's the next one. Archibald Alexander Leach. These guys are good. <laughs> Cary Grant, absolutely. We're learning something again. Right? And then here, here's the last one. Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Mark Twain. Listen, I found a website that lists them from A to Z. And it was just page after page after page of all these folks who had, who who used to be one name, and now their 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 name is something different. This morning, what we're going to do, you'll see if you look on the back of your bulletin, whether you're a, a person who takes notes or not, we're going to fill in some of those blanks this morning on a, a person's name and what really they're equated with. Just like Marion Morrison is equated now with John Wayne. We're going to see this morning some characters in the story that we'll see whose names are equated, I really believe, for all time with particular phrases or concepts. And so we're in a series, if you've been with us, and if you haven't, I'll catch you up to speed very quickly. We're, we're in a series uh, called 11 for 11. We're looking at some great lives, 11 great lives from Scripture. What can we learn from them? How did God work in their lives? What incredible truth and lessons can we take? And begin to apply. How can we see how God worked in them? And based upon the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can assume then that God will work in our lives in much the same way. Different scenario, scenario different setting, different, different time, but we know God is still the same. So we can draw some, some timeless principles from these particular lives. We've so far looked at, uh, at up to six now. We're on our sixth life we're looking at, the life of David, King David of Israel. And today, just like there's, there's always more behind a name than you, than you might first think, there's more to Marion Morrison than just Marion Morrison's John Wayne. It's the Duke. There's always more behind a name than what you might think. Today, we're going to look at the story of a man who kind of had a, a funny-sounding name, a name that, uh, that if you named your kid this today, folks would, would wonder about you just a little bit. But he had a life-changing experience because of a man with a very ordinary name. And I, I really would challenge you this morning uh, to engage your mind, to engage your heart, um, to, to engage with the story, to see uh, the, the life-changing truth in so many different ways that's found in this, this particular story. So as we think about that and kind of track toward that, I'd like for you, if you would, just join me in a word of prayer um, as we open our hearts to what God wants us to hear this morning. Lord, pray that you would overwhelm us with your truth this morning. 
that you'd break down the walls that may exist, that you would help us for the next few moments to focus on what you want us to learn, to cast, even in this moment, all of our cares on you, to let go of whatever it was that we were dealing with before we got here and whatever we'll deal with after we leave. And for this moment, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand the truth that we'll see in the story today. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for loving us so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to look at with you this morning a story in the book of 2 Samuel. If you've got a Bible handy, I'd like for you to grab it. If you don't know where 2 Samuel is, as I always tell you, please go to the table of contents. Look it up, find the page number, and go there. And then we're going to be looking at chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So take your time to get there, and and you can kind of hold your Bible open there, and and we'll make note, just so you know, if you'd like to write down references or try to turn there, we're going to reference some other scriptures today that support this particular story, and so uh, either keep your fingers handy to turn the pages, or or a pencil or pen handy to write down the references as we move forward. Here's a story of of a guy with with a funny name. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says here, David asked, Is there anyone remaining from Saul's family I can show kindness kindness to because of Jonathan? Now, David, of course, by this point, they kind of catch up to speak on the context. He's the king. He's had a lot of success. Things are going really well for him. He's sort of on the mountaintop. And so he's he's seeing God's blessing. uh, And and he, he wants to know, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family, the former king, that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan, David's close friend? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son, who is lame in both feet. The king asked him, Where is he? Ziba answered the king, You'll find him in Lodabar, at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, there's the funny name. Try saying that about five times really fast. Not going to happen. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops, so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those, who, all those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth. There I go again. Mephibosheth's servants. It's hard to say. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame 
and no fee. This story may be one that you've read before. Maybe you skipped over it because the names are hard to pronounce. Maybe you, you looked at it and you said, well, I, that seems like a really interesting story and not that great. I, there may be no greater picture of grace in all the Old Testament than what we see here in this particular story. It is an incredible truth, I think, as we look at the principles that we'll pull from this. An incredible truth for us today. Not just a, a neat story, not just something the king did, um, but, but something very incredible uh, for us today. Uh, I want to identify the, the roles of these different characters and, and see how they really do function as a foreshadow of, of the future. It's not just truth for them, certainly though it was, it's also a foreshadow of what was to come. So I want to look at the, at the characters and we'll kind of equate them to different words and, and then uh, foreshadow, see how they foreshadow us today. The first one, I, I, obviously, that, that we see here, uh, several characters, you see Mephibosheth. Write that name down. Learn how to spell it. Right? It's on the screen. Hopefully I didn't spell it wrong on the screen. I won't ask you to say it out loud. That'd be kind of funny. You're trying right now, aren't you? I like that. I hear you. Mephibosheth is, is a character that we see. The story really centers, centers around him being crippled. Mephibosheth is, is crippled. If you, if you notice in verse 3 and then again in verse four, uh, 13, rather, uh, it talks about the fact that he was lame. He was crippled in both feet. Now, hold your place in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and turn back just a few chapters to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look in, look in verse 4 of chapter 4. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So here's the deal. Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle. Fearing that the family would then be the next target, the nurse picks him up and runs, and in the process of her hurriedness, drops him. And as a result of him falling, he's crippled for the rest of his life. So he is physically crippled, and as we see in chapter 9, that's something that followed him, certainly through the rest of his life. Now, to be crippled, obviously, during that time, certainly during any time in the world's history, is a very challenging thing. In today's world, thankfully, we have a better understanding and held, I hope anyway, for all of us here, a higher value of those who are physically, mentally, whatever kind of disablement they may have. Hopefully, we hold them in higher value, seeing them as creations of God, not as some accident. But during this time, of course, the world was a different place, viewing things a different way. A crippled person during this time would have been obviously considered very unproductive, useless, worthless, just irrelevant, as if they're not quite human. And even Mephibosheth here in, in these verses considers himself, compares himself to a dead dog, he says in verse 8. Now, if you know anything about dogs during the ancient world, this isn't Fido, who's at your house, you know, bringing your slippers in the newspaper. The dogs were, were not exactly household pets. They weren't exactly considered to be what they are today in our world. The dogs were often the object as well as the source of, of routine insults. Uh, they were viewed with contempt for the most part. They had a, a marginal existence. They were sort of out there, but no one really cared about them. In fact, the, the death of a dog during this time was not mourned 
you didn't bury the dog under the tree with the marker and all that and have the service for the dog. And I understand how it goes, okay? I'm not trying to make light of that, but just understand that's what we do because we value our pets and animals so much. They didn't do that. In fact, the death of a dog was just sort of expected. It didn't matter to them really one way or another. And often those who were subordinates of a, of a lord, of a master, of a, of a king, would compare themselves or identify themselves to their superiors as dead dogs, as I'm really not worth that much. I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not valued. And so to identify oneself as a dog and, and a dead dog no less is really to draw attention to your own miserable condition, your own worthlessness, your own inconsequential nature. So here's Mephibosheth who comes before the king, crippled. And not only does he say, I, I, I'm crippled physically, but he, he also has this identity as being part of Saul's family. Saul was the king before David. Saul was a man who was the people's choice, but wasn't exactly the kind of guy that God wanted to be king. And Saul was a guy who disobeyed the Lord, didn't rule as if God wanted him to rule. And he was rejected by God. And his family was rejected from inheriting the throne. Jonathan, who was this great man of God, did not take over the throne. Instead, it went to David. And so all of Saul's family adds to the crippled nature of Mephibosheth. And so here he is. He says, I'm, I'm a dead dog. I'm crippled. I'm a part of Saul's family. What, King David, do you have to do with me? He had no way to change his situation, no way to heal himself, no way to to do anything for himself. This was going to be his life. And he knew it. Maybe in some ways he had accepted it, I don't know. Maybe in others he was frustrated by it, but certainly this was the way things were. I think he, Mephibosheth, as a crippled man in this particular story, provides a direct parallel for us. Because if you think about being crippled, we're talking about us. We're not just talking about a physically crippled man in the, in the Scripture. We're talking about those of us today who are all here, who all exist, and who are all crippled. Crippled spiritually by our sin. The Bible talks over and over about the crippling effects of our sin. The sin that we're born into, our sinful nature, the sins we commit as a result of that, they are crippling in our lives. We are under judgment because of that sin. From birth. We are born sinful. If you're wondering if, if anyone is born spiritually neutral, morally neutral, maybe you can go good, maybe you can go bad, I would both point you to the Scripture, which, which confirms absolutely that we are born sinful, and then I would point you to uh, actually uh, going and working in our nursery or in our children's department. As much as I love children, I've got four of them over there, so understand. But you, you, you spend any amount of time with him, you'll understand that selfishness and greed and those kinds of things are somehow inherent. And I'm sure they haven't learned those from any other parents that are here, obviously. But it's evident that we are not born neutral. We are spiritually crippled from birth. We're emotionally crippled as well, if you think about it. How many of us today have had that kind of week that's just crippled us emotionally? Some of you probably have dealt with, with bouts of depression. Things that emotionally that you can't control, fits of rage, whatever it may be, you, you look at yourself and say, I don't want to be this way, but you see the crippled nature of our emotional beings. We're also crippled relationally, certainly. James chapter 4 mentions that we war and fight because of our selfishness, because of, because of, of our self-centered nature. It causes quarrels and causes fights among us. 
Paul would say that he, he finds himself doing what he wishes he didn't do. He, he knew he was, he was still crippled. He walked with a limp, so to speak. So like Mephibosheth, we're, we're all crippled. We're all those dead dogs in the sight of the Lord. And so in our crippled nature, just like he had nothing to offer King David, we have nothing to offer the Lord. We have nothing to expect from him. We have nothing to merit anything from him. We have no way to change our own situation. We can't just try harder. We can't deny the facts of our own sin and crippled nature. That's impossible. And we can't uh, think that maybe we'll just earn something from God in the end and our good deeds will outweigh our bad. It doesn't work that way. Now, that all sounds really encouraging, doesn't it? Oh, pastor, today, when you go to lunch, what's your pastor talking about? Oh, he called me a dead dog. What else did he say? I don't know. I just stopped listening at that point. I didn't get up and walk out, but I stopped listening. You know, the story of Mephibosheth ended with him bowing before the king and saying he's a dead dog. It would be a very, very depressing, very discouraging story. You would probably want to stop listening at this point if I just said, let's close in prayer, you bunch of dead dogs. You know, I, I wouldn't expect you to listen beyond that. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on. And it goes on to picture King David as a picture of grace. David in this story equals grace. I want to, to draw some just general categories of the type of grace that David extended to Mephibosheth. And I would strongly encourage you to go through this story this week and read it and begin to study it and see what parallels obviously there are in, in other places in Scripture in the life of Jesus, but but what are some of the characteristics of the grace that was extended from David to Mephibosheth? I hope you notice in, in verses 1 through 5, there's a very intentional effort on David's part to extend grace. It says in verse 1, if you, if you still have your place in 2 Samuel 9, he says, is there, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? And he goes on, there's identified this man who's crippled named Mephibosheth. And David says, we'll, we'll bring him. I, I intend to show kindness to him. The word kindness there is, is really summed up as we see in the general context of the story in the word grace. David and Jonathan, before Jonathan's death, had made a covenant with one another. Now, a covenant was not just a handshake agreement. A covenant was, was binding for all time. Very different than most of the agreements that we have in our world today. They had made a covenant with one another that no matter what happened, that each, for all time, as long as they were living, would, would be gracious to the other person's family. That they would not destroy the other person's offspring and descendants and so on. And so it's because of this that David now remembers or is thinking about this particular covenant he made with his great friend Jonathan. And he says, now it's time to do something about it. It wasn't just, and I find this so fascinating, it wasn't just that David avoided doing things that were wrong to Jonathan's family. Sometimes we can do that, and, and, and that's okay. But what does he do? He doesn't just avoid doing things that were wrong. He says, who remains that I can show grace to? Who remains that I can do something for? He is intentional about going out of his way to show grace to Mephibosheth, someone in Jonathan's family. Not only that, but, but the grace here, and this is fascinating, the grace here that David shows removes the fear that, that Mephibosheth certainly had. He, he says, 
to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, in verse 7, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father, Jonathan. Why on earth would he be afraid? If you understand the, the, the culture during that time, when one king would rise to power, and another king was leaving power, and they were not father and son, or maybe sometimes even if they were, the, the rising king would annihilate the family of the former king for the purpose of preventing any revolt whatsoever. Now, logically, it makes sense. It's a cruel practice, but it logically makes sense. If you're going to be king and have absolute power, you need no threats whatsoever to your authority. So the rising king would destroy, annihilate the family of the former king. So when Mephibosheth gets the knock on the door way out in Lodabar, he gets the knock on the door, they open the door, and here are the king's men. Imagine what he might have first thought. Oh, great. They found me. I was hoping this day would never come, but here it is. Maybe this is the end. Maybe I'll be tortured. Maybe I'll be put in prison, but certainly I'm sure I'll die at some point. Imagine his surprise when David says, Mephibosheth, and expecting maybe the, the sword to fall on his head, he, he instead hears these words, don't be afraid. His grace removed any fear that Mephibosheth may have had. The last thing Mephibosheth wanted was to see the king. But the king says, don't be afraid. My grace is going to take away your fears. David's grace also restored and blessed Mephibosheth. In verse 7, at the end of it, he says, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. David didn't have to do any of that. He could have just said to Mephibosheth, hey, look, I just wanted to call you in and let you know I'm not mad at you. Uh, I'm not going to do anything to you. You can go live in peace. Uh, you, you're, you know, you're, you're forgiven the sins of, of your grandfather, and, and I'm not holding that against you or your family. I'm not going to take you guys out. He could have very easily just done that. But instead, what he does is to restore him, to bless him beyond anything that could have been expected whatsoever. And he does it as tangibly as possible in restoring land to him, which was the most valuable thing he could have had during that time. David's grace also is obviously very undeserved. Mephibosheth in verse 8 bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Who in the world... Not only am I crippled, but I'm a member of the former king's family. What do you want with me other than to kill me? What do I deserve from you other than for you to annihilate me and my family? The grace shown by David was completely undeserved. It also redefined the one who received it. Look in verses 9 through 11. The king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Verse 11. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do as my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth, don't miss this, ate at David's table just like one of the what? King's sons. Do you see how the grace of David redefined who Mephibosheth was? No longer is he this outcast who needs to be in hiding for fear of his life. He has now made one of the king's sons, not just brought into the court and given a little place out back to hang out. He's brought to the king's table. 
and shares the meal with the king's family with no fear whatsoever, with absolute blessing that comes with being a part of the king's court. So now this guy who was crippled, who was out there somewhere hiding, is now redefined, given a new identity. No longer is he Saul's grandson, he's David's son. Yes, he was Jonathan's son, but David now adopts him and brings him into the king's table. That was a place of honor, a place of blessing. Not anybody, just anybody got to eat there at the king's table. Mephibosheth is redefined. He gets a new identity and a new status and a new family. And in David's grace in verses 12 to 13, we see it overcomes all the disabilities that Mephibosheth had. I find it interesting that when we're introduced to Mephibosheth, before we even get his name, he's introduced as a, a man who is lame in both feet. And then look at the very end of verse 13. Since Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, he always had the king's table, and what? He was lame in both feet. Do you think it's an accident that the person who wrote this included at the beginning of his introduction and at the very end of the story, oh, by the way, he was lame in both feet. The grace that David showed to him overcame every single difficulty and disability that Mephibosheth had. It didn't matter to David that he was crippled. It didn't matter to David how badly he was crippled. He just said, where is he? Bring him. He's going to be part of my family. Overall, the grace of David obviously was free. It was one-sided. It was accepting. It was loving. It exposed the condition, obviously, of Mephibosheth, but only to overcome that condition. It was something that certainly Mephibosheth could never repay. He just simply needed to receive it and to enjoy it. That grace that David showed to Mephibosheth is equal and far outpaced, obviously, and completely fulfilled, we see in Jesus Christ. That grace was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. The same characteristics of David's grace are true and far and away better and more fulfilled, obviously, in Christ. His grace toward us as crippled sinners is intentional. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us that he died for our sins. Intentional. Not leaving it with mere words. His grace removes fear. 1 John chapter 4 says that perfect love drives out all fear. The Lord Jesus loves perfectly. In his presence, as believers in him, we have no fear of condemnation. No fear of judgment. His grace restores and blesses. Bringing us out of darkness and into light to make us who we were created to be. His grace is certainly undeserved. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that what we really should be paid for our sin is death. But God offers a free gift for His grace of eternal life. His grace also redefines us. Paul would write in Corinthians that we are a new creation, that the old is gone. We're in a new family. We have a new identity. We receive the grace of God. His grace overcomes. He overcomes the world. He overcomes our sin. He overcomes our past. He overcomes any failure. His grace is free. His grace is certainly one-sided. His grace is accepting. It's loving. It does expose our condition as crippled sinners, but it doesn't do that just to, to beat us up in some way. It does that so he can overcome our condition. And certainly, his grace can never be repaid. I want to give you this morning as we think about 
Mephibosheth, who was crippled. It gives us a picture of us as crippled. And then David, who is this picture of grace, who foreshadows the, the great fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I want to give you one principle to remember and to go from and, and to begin to put into practice. And I believe if you'll remember this and if you'll put it into practice and if you'll do it, that it will drastically change your life, both for all eternity and certainly for your time here on earth. The principle is simply this. We are all crippled and we all need grace. We are all crippled and we all need grace. We, we need grace from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says to save us. Is by grace you have been saved through faith. Can't earn it. Can't work your way toward it. We need grace from God to define us. Paul talked about in 1 Timothy, his redefining moment. He said, I was the worst of all sinners, but Christ showed me mercy and radically changed my life. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been given a new identity. I've been redefined. We need God's grace to save us, to define us, and also to strengthen us. Paul would talk about how his weaknesses gave opportunity for God's grace to strengthen him. Some of us this morning need to receive God's grace for one or all of those things. Some this morning need God's grace to break down the walls that have been created by unbelief. We need to receive the free gift of God, of grace and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Stop trying to earn our way to heaven. Stop hoping that one day we'll make it if we're good enough. The Bible says that ain't going to happen. The Bible says there is but one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it. Some of us today maybe need to yield ourselves and say, God, I receive your grace this morning, and I place my faith in Jesus Christ. Others need to say, you know what? I've done that. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only one who can save me, but I don't live like it. In fact, I need to understand my new identity, not as this broken down, beaten down old crippled sinner anymore, but as a new creation in Christ. I'm convinced that many Christians, maybe most, certainly not all, but many, maybe most Christians, never fully understand their new identity in Christ. And we live as broken down, beaten down, crippled sinners who are scared to death of God's judgment that's already been removed because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we fail to live in our new identity. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in, those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. My hope, my prayer for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is that you will understand that you have been redefined. You are no longer who you once, once were. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What freedom there is in that. We certainly need to be strengthened for daily living by the grace of God. God's grace is the only thing that can help you get through whatever it is you're dealing with right now. You need strength emotionally, you need strength relationally, you need strength spiritually. God's grace is the only thing that can deliver that. We certainly need God's grace. We also, I think, need grace from others. And I don't want you to miss this this morning either. I, 
I've learned the hard way what it's like not to receive grace from, from other people. I'm sure you can tell your stories too. I'm not going to bore you with my stories, but I will say this. I know what it's like. I know what it's like even with people that you would think ought to extend you some grace. I remember a conversation I had with a guy that I worked for in a church. And we sat down and, and I just told him, over some disagreements that we have, I said, look, I, I'm not asking anything from you except to extend some personal grace to me. So because you haven't done that yet. Maybe you've had somebody like that who, for whatever reason, just does not extend any grace to you. I know what it's like, and maybe you do too, to have a, a bunch of legalists who are, who are lacking grace to try to make you like them, not like Christ. You've been there. You know, a legalist wants you to be like them. The biblical Christian wants you to be like Christ. And after all of that, I, my, my, my heart's desire is to have people in my life who love me, who tell me the truth, but do it with kindness. People who are patient, who are kind, who don't hold things against me, who aren't waiting for me to mess up, who will encourage me, who forgive me, who help me get back on my feet when I fall. And I guarantee you, I'm not the only person in this room that wants those things. I guarantee you that if I need grace from others, then so do you. So do we. We need grace from God, certainly. We need grace from others. So we need it. But others need it, too. The real issue with people that you struggle with is that they need the grace of God. Not that they need to be fixed by you. They need to be fixed by God. They need to be saved. They need to be defined. They need to be strengthened by the grace of God. And it will change your life if you view people from God's perspective rather than from a human perspective. As hard and difficult as that is, it will change your life. Others need grace from God. But they also need it from us. If we need it from others, then they, they obviously need it from us as well. And in our actions, in our attitudes, in our words, in our responses, in our forgiveness, in our listening to them, the people around us desperately need for us to be used as instruments of God's grace. At home, with your spouse, with your children, with your grandchildren, whoever it may be, at school, the folks who simply just get on your nerves and you wish they weren't there anymore, at work, the person who comes in late, doesn't do their job, gets on everybody's nerves, and makes a bigger paycheck than you do. In public, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when Walmart doesn't have what you need, when you go to the gas station and prices are so high, People who irritate you for no reason, they need our grace. At church, with those who we tend to disagree with for whatever reason, for those that we misunderstand, for those that we don't like, for issues that probably by now you maybe can identify but don't really remember all the issues. If you're like me, that's kind of the way it is. They need our grace. In all settings, wherever you are, people need grace from us. 
the same principles that David applied applied in the grace that we extend other people. It needs to be intentional. It certainly is undeserved. It will likely be one-sided. It will be loving. It will overcome their failures. And I'll say this, and I want to read you a parable from the New Testament as we close. Those who have received God's grace, don't miss this, have no excuse for being graceless people. Those who have received God's grace, don't take it as condemnation, take it as a challenge. Those who have received God's grace have no excuse for being graceless people. Matthew chapter 18, we get an illustration of this. Peter is asking the Lord here, how many times should I forgive someone? Maybe you're familiar with this story. Chapter 18, verse 21 of Matthew, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Basically, Lord, how much grace really do I need to extend to somebody? When does this thing run out? He says, as many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported their master to their master everything that had happened. And after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt, all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. We are all Everyone's. We all need grace. My prayer for you today as we close is that if you are a person who has not yet received God's grace, you would place your faith in Jesus Christ and receive that free gift of salvation through faith alone. Believing in Him as the Son of God, as the one who died to pay the price that we owe. Maybe if you're that person who's already done that, that you'd let God deal with your heart on how in response you now live. We are all crippled. Every one of us, no matter how much we try to hide, we're all crippled. We all need grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. That while we were crippled in our sin, you loved us and died for us. 
Thank you. 